0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Karen Ahrens. She is a health, food, and nutrition consultant based in Bismarck, North Dakota. She is also a fellow registered dietitian and policy advocate. She serves as coordinator for the Creating a Hunger Free North Dakota Coalition. She is also past chair of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Legislative and Public Policy Committee, as well as the Farm Bill Work Group. She and her husband, who is a trained chef, are past chairs of the International Club of Bismarck Mandan, and they teach cooking classes together specifically featuring locally grown foods. And she absolutely supports the movement towards local food security and sustainability. I know Karen through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, as well as the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Practice Group. Karen, welcome.
1: Thank you, Melinda. It's so good to be speaking with you today. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, it is my pleasure. And you've done such great policy work over the years, And you recently returned from a trip to our southern border. And I should let our listeners know that this was a trip in February. So it was pre-COVID-19. And so we can only assume that what you witnessed there has been harmed by the recent conditions with regard to the virus. So we'll talk about pre and post and some of your thoughts about that. But tell me how you came to go on this border trip.
1: Well, I met the organizer of these trips through our Hunger-Free Coalition. Vicki Schmidt is a woman who lives in West Fargo, North Dakota, and she's been organizing these type of border trips to help people experience and be able to witness what's happening there. For several years. And prior to that, she also visited Central American countries and arranged for visits in Central American countries. So through our mutual work on the creating a Hunger-Free North Dakota Coalition, I met Vicki as a hunger and justice advocate. And she invited me to come on one of these trips. And I put it off for a while thinking that, oh, it's not the right time. Is it my place to go on one of these trips? And I felt this call and decided to go.
0: Mm. Well, we will dive into what you witnessed. But I think that through your hunger and justice lens, and for all the work that you've done in North Dakota, on those very topics, I'm sure you've seen parallels. So Why don't we talk a little bit about that? So you have worked on hunger issues and poverty issues in North Dakota, especially rural North Dakota, where we've often had conversations about what's happened with the fracking industry, with Native American populations. You saw some parallels.
1: Yes. And so I I started it by first contrasting the border situation. So I, I was born in a town that was only a little over 100 miles from the Canadian border, and right now I'm a couple of hundred miles from the Canadian border. So I, I was starting out trying to make the contrast between our United States northern border and the southern border. And the northern border is a very quiet place and there is definitely traffic and there's commerce that take place across these borders between states and between countries but there isn't it's different it's more quiet it's more subdued and it's between i would say countries that are more similar than they are different and the southern border is very different i'd only been there across that border one other time, when I was a dietetic intern in San Diego and across the border a couple of times there to experience that, so it's a tale of contrasts and similarities, but like you say, the things that are similar and the things that are going on now with this global pandemic are that the People who are most vulnerable and the people that are most impacted by the way our society is set up are the ones who are especially most impacted by this global virus pandemic and the resulting economic consequences of the reduction in travel, of needing to stay at home, of needing to find protection for yourself. So those things have been amplified and the the cracks are deeper and wider for the people that I visited and for the people in North Dakota who live in rural areas, who live on tribal lands, who have brown skin and not white skin.
0: Mm. Yeah, I remember we were having discussions, gosh, years ago about the difference between the white or privileged populations in North Dakota, and those that are living on tribal lands. And and now we hear about the virus infiltrating tribal populations and really threatening to wipe those out. And I know that's veering off from our intended discussion about what you saw at the southern border, but I just wanted to throw that out there because I am so saddened by the thought that we could lose indigenous wisdom from the tribes, the people living on tribes in our own country. But we also see the same situation with the southern border and the individuals who are coming across, they too have indigenous wisdom, but it, it's really not respected. It's, it's more exploited.
1: Yes, I would agree with you, and especially my thoughts and prayers are with the, the Navajo Nation which, to my knowledge, is experiencing the most number of diagnosed cases. Here in North Dakota, the cases are just beginning to start out. The Mandan, Idaza, Ricora Nation, um, seeing a small cluster of cases this week as we speak.
0: Mm. Well, you were both in Mexico as well as in cities along the border in the United States. What was the feeling? on the southern border, did you find that you saw immigrants going through the process of trying to come across, you met with immigrant populations, they were coming over, they were escaping horrible situations? You know, it depends on what news outlet you want to listen to. There are some news outlets that promote such hate for the very people who are escaping tragedy. My feeling is that it's a very small percentage of people who are coming across the border to do, you know, to commit crimes. It's more a matter of people are leaving their families, they're leaving the land that they love, their homeland, and they are escaping real crime and exploitation and sexual harassment and worse.
1: Yes, we met people on the Mexican side of the border because at the time we went, the Remain in Mexico policy was being implemented. So the MPP, or Remain in Mexico, program was people were presenting at our southern border in Mexico to request asylum, but they were not able to cross over into our country. They were being forced to remain in Mexico and given court dates to come back to hear their cases and present their cases before a lawyer. So where we met people were in a very small shelter and a very large shelter. And this past month, as the COVID virus has become worse and we've been hearing about more cases in Mexico, I just have these thoughts of meeting with, especially these women and children who are in these shelters, In the large shelter, there were over 350 people staying at. These were people mainly from Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, who were caught in a kind of limbo in that they couldn't cross the border, even though many of them have family or sponsors here in the United States. And they couldn't return to their countries for those things that you describe, gang violence, domestic violence, the inability to make a living for themselves, so they were in this kind of limbo. And the quarters in which they were staying were very close. In a bedroom that might sleep one single person for you and I, Melinda, there were four sets of bunk beds and four mothers and their children staying in this very small space. At the same time, we're being recommended to keep at least six feet or more distance between ourselves and at the smaller shelter for women only and their children, there were eight women and 10 children staying in a very small space. They don't necessarily have the resources to purchase masks. They did in these situations have access to running water, but maybe not hand sanitizer. I don't know if they're being provided with masks now and I'm very concerned for their health and safety.
0: Mm, absolutely. Now, our work, of course, is based on food. It's probably the thing that we think about You know, when we first get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night, we think about food access, food quality, food security. And it's hard enough for people to access their normal channels of food when things are going well. But what about now at the border How are people eating well?
1: Some aid groups have pulled back their volunteers from being in these situations. So I think there are places where you can find a meal that is low cost or provided for free. But in other cases, I don't know where people are finding food to eat.
0: When you were there before the virus, how was the food then?
1: The food... For In the large shelter that we visited, there was one paid cook and a few volunteers, and like in the United States, the shelter was relying upon donations of tortillas, donations of fruit from a grocery store. They did purchase some. The shelter is funded on donations and with the support of the Catholic Church, and so They had very little storage, so it was basically an everyday occurrence of trying to make sure they could secure food to provide meals for all the people that were staying there.
0: Wow. So it was an everyday challenge, more or less, but based on the kindness of charity organizations. Yes. Wow. And
1: And then also related to food, we did learn about a farm worker center. Mm Mm-hmm. And where there is a place for farm workers who cross over the border from Mexico to work on farms in the United States in New Mexico and Texas to plant or harvest the the onions that we eat, the chili peppers that we eat. And so I'm thinking about these farm workers too because prior to this farm worker center being built in El Paso, Farm workers were sleeping on the streets when they would cross over. They often start their days at midnight when the farms come seeking employees for the day. And they get, again, in close quarters to ride on a bus or a van out to where they work in the fields and go to work picking the food that we eat and then work for a long shift, try to rest with the center. They could take advantage of education and a nice meal when they got done with their work. And I haven't been able to follow up to find out how that system is functioning or not functioning at this time. Mm.
0: Well, let me take a break. We're halfway through. And just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Karen Ahrens. She is a fellow registered dietitian, a policy advocate based in Bismarck, North Dakota. And she has recently returned from the southern border, where she has been witness to what is happening at the border with migrants, with our food system, how everything is connected. And now thinking about those situations that we're trying then and comparing them to how they are now with the COVID-19 situation. Karen, I think you were talking about the La Frontera Farm Workers Center, and that was based in El Paso. And I wanted to bring something up because you have collected a daily diary of your notes, and I want to let our listeners know that this is also available online, and I'll provide a link to that. That is openingborders.com, but again I'll provide that link. But you speak about human dignity. And we have a center where farm workers are paid poverty wages, below poverty wages. You know, you talk about how much they get for picking a, a bucket of onions or chili peppers. And they're working hard. This is dangerous work. I know children often work in these fields as well with these sharp knives and blades used to harvest. So I'm wondering, what about health care? Is health care also provided at the center there?
1: No, not to my knowledge. I think they could provide some access to health care as needed. But again, this is another gap. People doing this work that now FEMA and the federal government have deemed as essential work and not being paid very well or even well enough to live on to pay your rent, your fuel, your food costs, and all the basic necessities of life. So when it comes to dignity, that is what we need to think about as we're now in this situation of pandemic And knowing that people who work on these farms are, no matter where they're at in the United States, farm workers face these challenges of being in crowded conditions in a bus or a van to get out to where they work, to making sure that they have personal protective equipment, that they can work in situations where they're being spaced out from other workers and not being exposed in close quarters to potentially pick up the virus.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's such a challenge. And it's not something that we think of every day. You know, as you write in your diary, when we have a piece of onion on our sandwich, or we have a chili pepper, we don't typically think of the hand that picked that particular vegetable. You write that each bucket full of chili peppers will net 65 to 75 cents. And to earn the US minimum wage, a worker would have to pick 100 buckets in a day. An average income for chili pickers is less than $7,000 a year. And just as a friendly reminder, the federal poverty guideline for a family of four is $26,000 a year. So we are reminded in your notes just what little value is given to farm workers. We take pride in having this diverse and quote-unquote cheap food supply, but it comes at great cost. So where do we go from here? You know, I I feel like the COVID-19 virus, the pandemic, has raised global awareness to the necessity of so many people in our society who are typically exploited or simply unseen. But now we realize, oh, gosh, we want that food on our table. We're kind of missing having an onion or some celery in our crisper. And then we start thinking about why isn't it there, and that goes back to the farm worker. Do you think our farm policies are going to change as a result?
1: Well, I hope so. I hope that when we come through this, that we come out of it on the other side, not expecting to go back to the way things were, but coming through the other side to something better, something better that recognizes the value of work, all along the food chain, from the people that plant and grow and pick our food, the people that drive the trucks or transportation to get the food from place to place, people who work in warehouses, people who work in the grocery stores, people who may cook or clean up after our meals that we eat in restaurants, the people that serve us that wash the dishes in in restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we now have learned the term or or many of us are learning about what's deemed as an essential service and that we recognize this in a way that justly recognizes their value to our society with us talking about it and also recompenses them with just wages.
0: Absolutely. You know, Karen, I read your diary, the diaries that you kept. Each day you have an account of where you were what you experienced, the responsibility that you felt to tell the stories of the people that you met with. I think that storytelling is a beautiful way to bring life to some of the problems, the societal injustices that exist, and especially now as we're facing this pandemic crisis. But you talk about medical and dental clinic that you visited in Mexico, and you talk about how Women who are working in factories after they give birth to children, that a lot of the moms are not breastfeeding their children, which you and I know we've been advocates for breastfeeding. We know what a great protection this is, both for the children's health as well as the mother's. But one factor that plays a large role, you say, in the decision to use formula versus breastfeed is that many of these young mothers need to return to work in the factories in short order after giving birth to continue to support their families. The average pay rate is 55 to $65 a week. It takes both parents working just to scrape by. And in these very communities where these factories are, they don't have potable water. So they're mixing infant formula. It's making babies sick, and it gets back to the rights of women and being able to value the important work that mothers have in terms of caring for their babies. That's not factored into our GDP.
1: No, it's not. And so that's another thing that's being magnified in this crisis is our paid and family leave laws in the United States and in other countries, that in factories that produce the goods that we use, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear. So, in our society, we, we've been advocating for mothers and that employers would provide them with the opportunity to take enough leave so they can bond with their children, so that they can get used to being a mother and come to start on this uh, caring process which continues across the lifespan of the child, um, having access to a breast pump so that if you are working and you it's your decision to work or in other cases you, you're forced to work because you need two incomes or if you're single mother you, you need your one income, being that having policies that support the family, that support mothers that support fathers who want to be part of this process, too, in raising families, is we've been making a little progress in the United States, but once I crossed the border into Mexico, it's back many years in terms of being able to think about something like that, about enough time off, about any time off to use a breast pump so that you could continue to nurse your infant at the same time, or provide food for your infant at the same time that you're working. And to see and feel like we, we haven't made enough progress in the U.S. and then look at these situations that are even less progressive and more regressive, are it needs to be factored in somehow to the true cost of goods and services that we pay for.
0: That's right. The true cost of goods and services and having a level of transparency so that we really can make compassionate decisions. You know, I've heard this term, compassionate capitalism. And I think that, if anything, I would hope that after this pandemic, we can reevaluate our values. You know, we talk about having family values, but we're not really able to live those values in a situation that keeps things hidden from view. You write in one of your posts, You were in Mexico at the time. You say these stories of women and children are the most difficult to tell, but also the most important. Your group of 12 travelers this week has been entrusted with and asked to share the stories by the women we meet. It's our responsibility. We ask that you read and listen, because lives hang in the balance. That's really what we're talking about, is having respect for every life. I think that's what we all want It's just getting there is challenging for those of us who don't have a hand or feel like we don't have a hand in creating some of the policies, which gets right back to your policy work. I need to ask you a personal question because I'm very curious to know how this trip to the border changed your life.
1: Yes, even before I left, I was warned that this kind of trip would change my life. And I expected that, but I didn't know how. I would say that it cracked me open to be able to see and meet and give a hug to a woman, to a child, in a situation of limbo where they can't return home and they can't come to a safe place with a family member or a sponsor in the United States, that maybe before I could put it out of mind and not really think about when I bought some food at the grocery store or when I heard about those things on the news that talked about immigration and asylum that I didn't have to deal with them every day, day in and day out. But now when I know these things and have met and cried with women and children who are impacted in these ways, I guess is mostly changed me in ways to give me the courage to speak the truth to what's happening, to challenge the policies of our own government of the United States in the way that they're treating people. If we're making these policies that cause people to be held in detention in unsafe conditions without access to protection from this virus or from other things that could happen, then I need to speak out. When a woman asks us to tell their story, to not forget about them, then I need to speak out. When I'm sitting here looking at a bag that I purchased from a a cooperative effort by a group of helpers that are trying to help these women learn some kind of skill so they can earn money, I'm looking at a hand-embroidered bag made by a young boy, 10 or 11 years old, named Sebastian from Nicaragua, who came with his mom and his little brother, who fled from Nicaragua due to the political crisis. Their family was sent to Juarez under the MPP program, living with people they'd never met up until then, learning a skill, and still trying to keep hope alive that they'll be able to make it to hope and safety.
0: Well, Karen, unfortunately, our time is up, but... I want to thank you for making the trip. I want to thank you for helping to amplify the voices of people that most of us will never have an opportunity to meet. How empowering for you to have that gift to be able to share those stories and hopefully work towards changing policies. I will provide a link to your diary notes. As well as the background paper that you provided me from hunger to hunger, undocumented immigrants face hunger on both sides of the border. We don't have time to get into it today. But the other aspect that I think we should all become aware of is why people are fleeing countries and what led them to leave their homelands, which I'm sure they didn't want to in the first place. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Karen Ahrens. She is a fellow registered dietitian, a policy advocate, and a food nutrition consultant based in Bismarck, North Dakota. Karen, thank you so much for sharing these stories.
1: Thank you so much, Melinda. And to everyone who's listening, stay safe, stay healthy. Keep distance, stay home, you can save lives.
0: Thank you, Karen.